No matter where we are in life, no matter who we are in terms of our faith journey, um, what we know to be true is that his word doesn't return void. Consequently, what we are praying for today is that God would just speak to us, right? No matter where we are, no matter what we think, no matter what we believe, our levels of, of declarative, faithful obedience or highly skeptical experience um, is that God would speak to each one of us. So let's pray together as we jump into our uh, study through the book of Ephesians. And Jesus, we ask that you would speak to each one of us individually. God, you so love us, you gave your son to die for us. And as we are here gathered together, we know if that's true, then you have us here for a purpose, whether or not we realize that. You have a, an intention for today. And God, I pray that we would just be able to set aside the things that are happening and going on in the world and in life around us. Even our thoughts and our ideas and our preferences, just Jesus, hear clearly from you as you speak to each one of us. Amen. All right, so we've been going through the book of Ephesians, um, and I want to start today a little bit different because we're going to talk about some verses um, that, frankly, are some of the most, I think, misunderstood verses, the most misapplied uh, and miscontextualized verses um, that there are in Scripture, and especially as, as Paul talks about marriage. Um, but before I kind of like launch into what these verses are and have to say, I want to talk a little bit about the, the importance of purpose, the importance of purpose in terms of function and direction. Um, and what I mean by that is in any organization, every organization does stuff. They have, there's activity in an organization. There's activity towards something. I mean, what kind of the job of the leader of the you know, organization is to determine, why do we exist? What's our purpose? What's our function? In fact, this can be difficult if you have ever inherited or taken over a business that, that their kind of purpose and function was just to sell more with better margin and make more profit, right? And somebody said, comes along and say, says, hey, what's your mission and you think, ah, make more, right? And then you're like, no, 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 like, why do you exist? What's your bigger purpose? And it's like, no, that, that, that's it. What's your why behind all that? And, here, and here's why they ask the question. Because the purpose or the reason that you exist determines the things that you do and the roles that you play. The purpose and the reason that you exist determines the things that you do and the roles that you play. In a couple months, in about a month, we are going to embark on a journey together. And by that, I mean the Florida State football team, <laughs> as I'm sure you're aware, right? And, and, it's, and it's like a toxic relationship, you know? They're going to get better, oh, you know? No, but maybe this year it'll be different, right? Oh. But here's what we know is that it's not a rec league team, right? It's not something that people just kind of go into and flippantly do. They have a purpose. Their purpose are to win games. Their purpose are, is to, you know, maybe, you know, be, maybe not... Maybe actually should still be in the national conversation after the second week of the season. You know what I mean? Like, like there are purposes and reasons and functions, and that differs very significantly to just like a rec league team, right? Because there, a lot of times it's just to have fun, that everybody can participate. And the reason I say that is because when Paul talks about marriage, one of the big things that I think is a, a honing point, a beaconing light, a, a, a north star, so to speak, is the purpose of marriage. And many of us never really actually thought about, why did I get married? Or you kind of intuitively kind of knew, I got it married because I'm in love, right? It takes, in fact, if we ever did a, did a whole relationship series, it would be um, a ripoff of somebody else's relationship series that just is called How to Stay in Love. Because functionally, it takes a pulse to fall in love, but it takes a plan to stay in love. And we don't really plan to stay in love. We're just like, oh, I have a pulse. I fell in love. Let's get married, right? But most of us, and truthfully, the reason and the purpose behind our marriage is something around the idea of um, 
I love this person. I care about this person. This person loves and cares about me, and I feel good. They make me feel good in our love relationship, and so we're going to love one another. And the purpose is somewhere mixed around the sense of self and somewhere around the sense of pleasure with, you know, this other person that's kind of intertwined to it. And very few of us actually think this is the purpose behind my marriage. In fact, very few of us, when we walked down the aisle, even knew. <laughs> what we actually didn't know when we walked down the aisles is when everybody says, I do, what, what they mean is like, I intend to, right? Like, I think I can. I think I will. I think I can get to that point, into that place, into that purpose. But here's why I say all this. Because what we rarely do is examine and say, okay, God, blank slate, as a follower of Jesus. Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus, then you're welcome to, like, listen. You're welcome to be a part of the conversation. Apply what you want. But it's specifically for followers of Jesus. We never actually look and say, okay, God, what is the actual end goal and function and purpose of the marriage? Because if I have a different end goal and the function, purpose, and marriage than God, then it's very easy for me to be acting like a rec team when he's acting like a multi-million dollar organization. And I say that as a starting point to say, we're going to take this text and, and kind of chop it up in a little bit different ways, but I want to start kind of close to the end. I want to start kind of close to the end in, in, in Ephesians 5, because Paul says, okay, this is the purpose. This is the purpose. This is the function of marriage. If you've got your Bible, you can open up Ephesians 5. We're going to start at verse 31. And as we start at verse 31, it's a... It's a it's an interesting place where he starts or where he is getting to this point. And we're going to kind of back up and get all the verses that are connected to this. But he says this. He says, therefore, when he quotes Genesis, he says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, here's, here's what he's saying. That in the garden, in Genesis, Genesis chapter 2, what happened and what, what went down is that Adam around or, you know, man around ish in the Hebrew language was around, which also kind of makes sense because it's like, is he a good husband? Uh, good husband ish, right? That's Hebrew. You didn't know you were speaking it the whole time. So as he looks and he says, okay, so there was a man and he was the ish. And one time as God had created everything, he said, look, this man is not good for him to be alone. Um, man, you go to sleep and out of the rib of the man came woman, put him to sleep, ish, woman, isha became, right? Now, pause and just say, that's a phenomenal nap, right? You imagine you're in Genesis, you're looking around, like, man, I'm tired. God just, like, hits you with some ambient, right? And you're just, like, asleep for a while. And all you wake up, you're like, dude, what's going to happen next time I wake up? <laughs> Chick-fil-A, obviously, right? <laughs> so he says, so then he, he celebrates, he celebrates and says, you know, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, all this kind of stuff. And then it circles back in the very next verse in Genesis 2.24 and it says this, so a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And here was the idea, that the ish and the ishha were distinctly similar in much ways, but different in some ways, in that when the two came back together in this one flesh union, it was not simply a union, but it was a reunion of what got started. And here's why that's significant. In the very next verse, he says this, the mis this mystery is profound, to which we would all say, what mystery are we talking about here? And Paul would use this language throughout the book of Ephesians to explain there's this like mystery of Christ, that God was doing something throughout history, that God was doing something specifically as they would think about it in the days of the prophets and of the kings and of the patriarchs and what we would look at as the Old Testament. 
And he said, and this was a mystery because we knew what God was doing. We knew there was going to be redemption. We knew there was going to be salvation. But we really didn't know exactly what it was going to be or look like until we met Jesus. So for a long time, this was a mystery. And he says, in this mystery of the two, of the one becoming two and the two becoming one, he says, this is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Now, if we're all adequately confused by that statement, welcome to the club, okay? But here's what he's saying. And this is the, the kind of the purpose statement behind marriage. He says this. That the entire time, what we didn't realize was that God had created man and woman to be for one another in such a way that we would actually reflect Christ in God. In other words, the purpose of marriage, the mystery of marriage, as he would say, that they didn't get at the beginning, that it took a while for us to understand, but upon the realization of Jesus, we now realize what's going on, is that when the two become one, this one flesh, this oneness that we have, what we don't realize is that we have become one with God because of Jesus. Because in our sinfulness, we were very unlovable. We were re- not just unlovable. We were just wildly rebellious against God. God saw that, knew that, loved us, died for us, consequently, in his death and his sacrifice, we are made whole and spotless. And he says, so here's what I want you to realize. Here's the purpose of marriage. It's to reflect the mystery of Christ in the church. The purpose of marriage is simple. It's to reflect the mystery, the dynamic, the relationship of Christ in the church. And this wasn't totally clear when it first started. As many of the Old Testament signs and as many of the Old Testament develops weren't really clear when it first got started that this was, in fact, the purpose and the function of marriage. And here's why that's important. And here's kind of the between the lines, I think, in our culture of that. For most of us, most of us, Marriage revolves around me. And we know there's another person involved, but we, we don't get in, we don't walk down an aisle because it's like, man, this person makes me feel terrible about me. If you do, that's, that, that's an issue. You, I have wonderful therapists I can recommend, right? But the reality is, is we walk down the aisle and then we live in relationships. And a long time ago, you know, it used to be focused around we. And Tim Keller talks about this, this in his book, The Meaning of Marriage. And if you're in that class, then you, this tracks with you. But marriages have subtly moved from we to me, from we to me, which means my fulfillment, my happiness, my freedom in our marriage is ultimately what matters. And when I feel like I'm unhappy or unfree, I no longer want to be married anymore. Well, the problem is, is the more we focus on me and not on we, the actual less happy and less free I feel. Because you're not for me, you're for you. I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. But here's why this is is important. Because if marriage is focused on me, none of what we're going to read makes sense. But if marriage is focused on, okay, the picture that we create, husbands and wives, is a demonstration of God and his love for us, is a demonstration of us and our love for God. There's a couple commentaries that, that said this just so beautifully. A couple different people, theologians. 
John MacArthur said this. He said, the sacredness of the church is wed to the sacredness of marriage. So by your marriage, and I love this, so by your marriage, you are either a symbol or a denial of Christ and his church. Now, many of us think like, man, like the greatest sermon that I will ever give is my marriage. But it's true. He said, this is supposed to be kind of like a functional dynamic of a relationship that people see and they say, man, the only reason that makes sense is because of Jesus. The only reason that makes sense is because of God. Piper said it this way, John Piper, a.k.a. the pipe. He says, which no one actually calls him except for me. I also wouldn't recommend repeating that, nor will I probably in the 11 o'clock service. (laughs) Here we go. So... He says, marriage is like a metaphor or an image or a picture or parable that stands for something more than a man and a woman becoming one flesh. It stands for the relationship between Christ and the church. That's the deepest meaning of marriage. It's meant, and I love how he said this, it's meant to be a living drama of how Christ and the church relate to each other. That this is supposed to be this beautiful, dynamic, living picture of us in the church. And just for a moment, let me say, because we're going to hop into the rest of the verses, but let me say this. Before we hop in, I wish, I wish I could take all the preconceived notions and experiences that we have about what Paul says and how we contextualize and just throw them out the window. If we could just listen for a blank slate for a second, I think what we're going to find is these verses that he gives are wildly helpful. So this is what Paul says, Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to read fairly quickly through them. We're going to start, actually, I started at verse 18. We're going to start to get a little bit of momentum into it because this is what kind of gives context. Paul's talking. He's talking about being very careful how you live, being very careful how you work, operate. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, he says, Don't get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So this is all under the context, under the guise of we are filled with the Spirit. What does that look like? We're addressing one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing and making a melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and to everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 21, submitting to one another. In other words, here's here's kind of the the banner that I'm going to start to put forward is this. It's that the Spirit-filled life, two people filled with the Spirit, living and loving in the way that Jesus did, this is what it looks like. It looks like this sense of mutual submission. That at every opportunity, I look and I say, how can I put you first? How can I put you first? How can I put myself under you and think of you more highly than me? Paul talks in Ephesians, or Philippians, I'm sorry, chapter 2, when he says, Each of us, we should have the very same mindset of Christ Jesus, who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or something to be leveraged. In other words, he could have pulled the God card, but he didn't. He said he humbled himself, taking the very nature of a servant. And he became obedient, obedient to death, even death on a cross. So the idea here is that Jesus saw us and did not leverage his authority, but emptied himself of his authority and served. And while his authority was there and his godness was always there, he did not choose to leverage that component, but instead he chose to deny that component so that he could demonstrate for us the way of love and serving. So it says, okay, so this is what I want you to do. I want you to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, I'm going to read all of these verses together so then we can pick them back apart. Verse 22. So wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. 
Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water in the word, so that he might present the church to himself without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Now, let me, let me pick apart a couple of big things in this as we're starting to talk about it. Now, under the banner of mutual submission, what that actually functionally looks like is marriage is a race to the bottom. True biblical marriage is a race to the bottom. It's a race to put the other person first. And so he says something to wives, but I want to pause on that because if I go straight to that, we have a lot of assumptions about what a husband is. And if you know me and we talk about this subject, I am very, very clear on men because I, one of the foundational things that I think is always true, John Maxwell said this. He said, everything rises and falls on leadership. And if men, you are to be Christ to your wife, then that means your wife's response is contingent on your leadership. Now let me be clear about a couple things. He says, husbands, husbands. And in fact, if you're here and you're single, this, this is why this is so important for you. Because what you're looking for is a person like this. Dating, it's a tryout. It's a tryout. And at any point in time, you can say, next. When you get married, there ain't no next, or at least there ought not be. And so what you're doing, you're just saying, is this person demonstrating this in their everyday life? You don't want to get married to see what someone will become. You are marrying who they are, whether or not they ever change. And so he says, so husbands, here's what I want you to do. I want you to love your wife as Christ loved the church. Now, culturally, we have a problem with the first part, which is the wife's part. But culturally, they had a massive issue with the husband's part. The wife's part to them, honestly, was self-evident. Because in there, there was a mixture of different cultures. There was the um, Jewish culture, there was the Greek culture, and there was the Roman culture. Basically, Jewish culture was women had no rights and women were property of men. Uh, Greek culture was essentially that, that women are only meant for men. And Roman culture was, again, you had no rights, no responsibilities, and anything could be done as long as, you know, basically a man deemed it to be done. No validity, no worth, women were property. And so into this culture, Paul says, husbands, I want you to know. I want you to love your wives. And here's how I want you to love your wives. Like Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? Christ loved, served, sacrificed, and died for the church. In other words, the most godly husband looks like a crucified Savior. It's for me at every turn and every opportunity to say, no, no, no. Like, if there's what I want and what you want... If there's my will and your will, I'm thinking what's best for you, not what's best and selfish for me. It's for me to say, okay, my greatest ministry is to love and to serve my wife. What does love even look like, right? That's a, that's a, a term that's fairly subjective. Well, Paul does a great job of, of explaining that. Well, first off, let's talk about the fruit of the Spirit. So the godly husband, by the way, this only works if two people actually submitted to the Spirit of God. What does the Spirit look like? A filled Well, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now, ladies, I understand because you're thinking, where is he? Right? That's why I'm talking. 
He says, here's, here's what you should look like. Just as a person who's a follower of Jesus, you should look like love. You should look like joy. You should look like peace. You should look like patience. You should look like kindness, gentleness, self-control. Paul, 1 Corinthians 13, goes through this list. It says, love is patient. Love is kind. And in fact, let's just read some of this together. Let's see if I have this one already taken out. Here's the ways it describes it. It's patient. It's kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not arrogant or is not rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable. It is not, let me just read that again, fellas. It is not irritable. Okay, just make sure we got that one. Also, it doesn't insist on its own way. Well, that's interesting. Even when it's early, even when it's early, even when the kids are crying, even when the kids are crying, even when I want to pull my hair out and I am wildly stressed at work, even when you want to pull your hair out and you're wildly stressed at work. It's not resentful. That would, in and of itself, I think, transform most of our marriages. It doesn't rejoice as wrong, but rejoices in truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things, and love never ends. And so Paul says to husbands, he says, okay, this is what I want you to know. Is that husbands, your primary responsibility is to crucify yourself, to die to yourself for the love, honor, support, and sanctification of your wife. In fact, Paul would continue to say this. That, and here's the purpose of that, he might sanctify her, cleanse her by the washing of the water with the word. In other words, so husbands, here's kind of our jobs. And, you know, if you're kind of single or dating or thinking about, you know, mating at some point when you're married, obviously, right? Like, what he's saying is, is, is husbands, it's our job to die to our wives for her spiritual sanctification. I mean, what's best for me? What's best for Lindsay? And what's best for Lindsay in a spiritual context? How do I need to crucify my wishes, hopes, and dreams that I can love and serve my wife better? Husbands, let me just give you a... This, this might be the only thing you take and apply, and that's okay. And that, in fact, I think this would be great. I would love it if everybody who is married who hears this, every husband who hears this, goes home and asks their wife one simple question. What's one way, what's one thing I can do to deny myself and serve you? What's one thing I can do to deny myself and serve you? Because you want to know what great leaders do? Great leaders don't project needs, they listen to needs. Great leaders don't assume answers. They search for answers. Great leaders don't make all the decisions. Great leaders just make sure the right decisions get made. Great leaders intentionally mine into the underworkings of their organizations to understand what's actually happening in the organizations and how they can systemically help and solve problems. So he looks at him and he says, Husbands, love your wives. For her sanctification. And here's why I say, ask her, what's one way thing I can do to deny myself? And why I say that great leaders don't just project solutions to problems they think are there, because husbands, let's be honest, this is, I mean, I'll, let, me just, let me just be very blanketed in this statement. The classic husband projects the need for the family that I need to go and I need to go and work, I need to go make, I need to go provide. And so what we'll actually do is we will sacrifice our family in order to provide for our family, knowing that the provision is actually already there. We're just trying to build our own kingdom. 
And we'll call it providing for our family. Paul says, now if the purpose is marriage is to make you happy and to build your kingdom, by all means. But what Jesus did, what Jesus did was different. He understood that the way up was through the way down. The way to the top was putting himself at the bottom. The way to influence the world was to serve the world. And he says, and beyond that, verse 26, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves himself or his wife loves himself. In other words, here's, here's what we get is that we as a group collected together are the body of Christ. We are one in Christ that in the same way as Jesus prayed in the high priestly prayer, he says, God, may they be one in us as I am in you and you are in me. May they be one in us. In other words, there's this mysterious, mystical sense that we are united with Christ. And he looks and he says, okay, so husbands, in the same way that you would think, okay, this is my flesh, that's her flesh. He says, no, no, no. When you come together and you're married, you're one flesh. You are simply one flesh. And as this unfolds, what you need to know is this one flesh you wouldn't, you wouldn't do things to your own flesh, so don't do that thing to her flesh. Now, this is wildly different. Because we live in a world that has perpetuated, and not just in a world that's perpetuated, we live in a religion and a Christianity that has taken this and in an overheightenedly sense of masculinity used this verse to say that men should do the important things and women should stay home and make sandwiches. In our house, it's I will drop the kids off, I will be there when they get home, and I will make dinner for all of us because my primary job is to serve our family. I will go home from work early, and I will stay up late finishing work. Because that's my job as the husband. It's not, hey, hon, will you, will you make me a sandwich? It's, hey, hon, can I make you a sandwich? And by the way, you've had a hard day. Can I get you a, a nice glass of Chardonnay? But only one, because we're not going to get carried away, right? And if that makes you get drunk on much wine, then don't do any of it, right? Just drink like a bubble water or something, like whatever you want to have. And then he says, so wives, submit to your own husbands, your own, by the way, not to all. That would be, oh, good grief. He says, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church's body and is himself its Savior. Your husband's not your Savior. Jesus is your Savior. He says, in the same way that God is there for us, loves us, guides us, serves us, protects us, guards us, husbands, that's what you're supposed to do for your wife. And so now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives submit, to, submit in everything to their husbands. Now let me give you a picture of what this actually looks like because so far it's like here's some kind of big, broad concepts. And I've used this example before. But this is the example of the husband and the wife who are at the restaurant, which post-COVID we can now go to, right? And so you walk into the restaurant, and as you're about to go in, you know, one person opens the door for the other person, and one person says, you first, and the other person says, no, you first, and the other person says, no, you first, and the other person says, no, you first, no, you first, no, you first, and this line starts to develop because they're all saying, no, you first, no, you first, no, you first. And finally, the act of submission, because the, and this is, by the way, I know this is not how all marriages work out. No, this, this is just, we have to start with the perfect version, and the purpose of this is to say that eventually what happens is the wife's submission is the acknowledgement and say, okay, I am going to let you die, not me. 
I'm going to allow you to put me first, and so I will walk through this door first. There's this cool um, thing I was reading. It's a story, and uh, it's this guy named Wayne Grunman. He taught at this seminary called Trinity Seminary, and he was with some studs. I mean, he was with, like, D.A. Carson and Douglas Moo. If you don't know who those are, those are totally fine. Jesus still loves you. But they're people worth reading. I'm just going to say that, right? And so them with Wayne Grunman were all in this place. This was like the, like the trinity of theology, which is heretical to say. But they were just, I mean, they kill it. Well, Grudem's wife has fibromyalgia, or had fibromyalgia. And where they lived was a very cold and oftentimes a very damp place. And so they got invited at one point to Arizona. And this dampness and this coldness and this humidity would always get to her joints and everything. They went to Arizona for the first time. It was massive. For the first time in 12 years, they had ridden a bike together. Because she simply couldn't. And he saw this, and here's what he started to think to himself. If my wife is my body, I would probably move my body to a place where my body responds better. So I think we should consider moving to this place. Now here's what his wife said. "Uh Uh-uh. You have way too much influence. You are doing way too much for the kingdom of God at this seminary. And you're with some phenomenal people. And you guys together, you could do amazing things. And he said, "Uh uh-uh. No matter the amazing things, I would do this for my body if my body was you. Here's what's happening. He's saying, okay, I want to put you first. She's saying, no, I want to put you first. And he said, no, I want to put you first. And eventually, you know what the submission was? Him or her allowing him to make the decision, let's move to this place for the betterment of me. Let me just pause and say, what if that was our marriage? Isn't it possible that if we actually did that, actually lived that, that what we'd be stepping into is a reflection of who God has created us to be and the dynamic relationship that we have with God where we're just saying, okay, God, like whatever you want me to do, whenever you want me to do it, wherever you want me to go, God, my life is surrendered to yours. And I submit to you. So he looks at him. And in its best form, it says, wives, allow your husbands to put you first. And husbands, make sure you're dying to yourself daily to put her there. Now, this is a very different picture than what most of us think when we think about this. This is a race to the bottom and an allowance for someone else to put myself first. And if you are dating, you need to know that leadership and headship is a voluntary category. It's a voluntary category. And the reason that's important is because you are saying that I am volunteering, that I love you so much, I trust you so much, that I will absolutely. I believe that if we have a big decision coming up in our family, that you're going to think about it, you're going to pray about it, and you're going to fast over it. And you're not going to move forward until you have absolute clarity that this is the right direction for our family. He says, and that is this picture of the gospel. He ends this whole thing. says this mystery, it's profound, and I'm saying that refers to Christ in the church, verse 33. And he kind of summarizes it. He says, however, let each of you, let each one of you, husbands, love his wife as himself. Love his wife as himself. 
Think about what would I want someone to do for me if I was acting for me and I was her, what would I want done for me? Well, first, they'd probably want you to listen. Second, they'd probably want you to ask questions. Third, they'd probably want you to take initiative, right? I'm going to stop because I'm just going to start to rail on husbands. But, like, man, we just get this stuff so wrong. To be honest, like, like I can't say that I have friends who, um, uh, I don't have friends. Okay? <clears throat> I've heard of people who, like, they're trying to decide where they, what school their kids are going to go to. And it's like, well, I'm just going to let her decide. It's like, well, grow up. That's like saying, oh, in this church, <clears throat> you know, <clears throat> I don't know, should we... Should we love God or not? I don't know. I'm going to let her decide. I don't know. Should we do in this city or that city? I don't know. I'm going to let the church, like, like, yes, there's a degree to which I want to love, I want to hear, I want to listen, but, but I'm not going to defer my responsibility. I'm going to be proactive. Isn't it easy as a husband, by the way, to just be, you know, by the way, because Jesus was wildly proactive. He took initiative. Not in a domineering way, in a loving and caring way. Anyway, I'm going to start. I'm going to go too far. Not too far, too long, to be clear. He says, however, let each one of you love his wife as himself. And let the wife see that she respects her husband. I love that because it doesn't even make, like, wives, you don't have to love us, to be clear. It never commands that. There's a part where it says, teach, you know, older women teach younger women to love their husbands. But it's like, try, you know, try to teach them. I know it's hard. And let me, let me just tell you why it's hard, because we're not always lovable. We're not. So he says, okay, so, 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 so wives, I want you to have a level of respect and honor your husband. And husband, I want you to die to yourself for your wives. And let me tell you why I think this is a beautiful picture of the gospel. Because what, when I say the gospel, what that means is that all of us have intentionally, sinfully turned from God. We just have. It's the general human condition. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short. There is not a person in here who didn't have that night, that weekend, that spring break, that business trip, that season of life, that freshman year, that college career, you know, like whatever it is. Like we've all had those times in the season. We've all rebelled against God intentionally. God knew that, saw that, and didn't expect us to earn our way into his good graces. But in our unlovableness, he sacrificed and he died for us. In our unlovableness and rebellion, he didn't say, in order for me to love you, you have to be good. He said, no, I love you because you're not good, and perhaps my love for you in your lack of holiness will inspire you to holiness as my spirit comes alive inside of you. In other words, we don't live for God in order to make God happy with us. God is happy with us, therefore we live for God. And so Paul kind of steps back and says, like, what if that, what if that was the story of marriages? What if the story of marriages wasn't a train wreck? What if the story of marriages wasn't a lack of emotional health? What if the story of marriages was not that we just got divorced as much as anybody else because as soon as you stop making me happy, I'm going to stop making you happy and we're going to stop being together? What if the story of marriages where when you are particularly unlovable, I'm going to particularly die for you? What if the story of marriages wasn't, you know, with I'm not, they're not doing their thing and I'm not getting my way? And should those things be worked out? Absolutely. Should those things be talked about? Absolutely. But what if every opportunity I saw my spouse, and let me just tell you, Lindsay has plenty of reasons to not love me. Because I'm like, I'm up here, you're like, oh, he's funny. There, it's like, no, he's 
not nice sometimes, you know? Like, oh, he's, he's wow, you can communicate. And Lindsay's like, why don't you communicate more, you know? There are plenty of reasons why I am unlovable. But let me tell you how beautiful this is. To know, to know, to know that in light of and in spite of my insufficiencies and deficiencies, I am still fully loved, chosen, accepted. And at the specific times where I am most unlovable, I am most sacrificed for. I feel free. I feel safe. And I feel like that is a picture of the gospel. We do not always get that right. But Paul says that this is a picture. This is a demonstration of this profound mystery. So here's what I want you to do. If you're in here and you're single, you're dating, or you're single and you don't ever want to date, and that's fine too. Married, single, this is a gift. But if you're single and all that stuff, and you're dating and you're thinking, I, I, I just simply want you to start to put this as a category of the evaluation of the person that is trying out to be with you. Does this person look like Jesus? And does this person look like Jesus when nobody else is watching except for me? If you're married, husbands, I want you to ask your wife this. What's one way? What's one way? I can deny myself and serve you this week. And wives, I want you to ask your husbands this. What's one way that I can defer to you this week? Here's what you're going to find. If you start to do that, you will have a, the beginnings of a marriage that start to reflect this. We will have the beginnings of marriage that start to look like Jesus. And when people see us, when people see the health, when people see the vitality, when people see the way that there is a sacrificial love for one another, they will look at it and they won't say, well, the divorce rate's the same, so who cares? They'll look at it and say, wow, that was different. When marriage goes from me to we to us and God glorifying and picturing him together, but it is a race to the bottom. Let's pray. Thank you.